You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 4th of December 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show... The eyes to the right, 311. The nose to the left, 293. Britain's government is found in contempt of Parliament as the Brexit fiasco grinds interminably on. My guests Quentin Peel and Kathleen Burke will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the likelihood that the CIA's director will tell US Congress anything about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi that we couldn't have guessed, a disconcerting result for far-right nativists in Andalusia, and is there any downside to banning plastic bags? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Quentin Peel, Associate Fellow at Chatham House and contributor to the FT, and Kathleen Burke, Professor of Modern and Contemporary History at University College London. Welcome both. We will start here in the UK and the latest frictionless process of the superbly engineered apparatus known as Brexit. Within the last hour, the British government has been found in contempt of Parliament for refusing to publish its full legal advice on Prime Minister Theresa May's Brexit deal. That advice, which one has assumes doesn't boil down to it's all grand lads this will go brilliantly will now be published ahead of what is scheduled to be several days of debate before parliament votes on it um quentin i don't really know where to start at this point um sort of half an hour of just sort of screaming really seems it seems almost apposite but that would be hard on our listeners um how far through the looking glass are we at this point uh, not very far yet. Oh, God. Uh, this, I think this vote is uh, what was quite nicely described to say is more of a distraction than a disaster, at least for Theresa May. That, Her- so- that sounds, if I may say so, after my years of living here, like a superb English euphemism for disaster. <laughs> well, the disaster is due to come next week when she loses the vote on her deal. And that, I think, still looks overwhelmingly likely. I mean, what we've seen today is that there is a clear majority that doesn't trust the government, I think, because that's what it's all about when they say to the government, we don't trust you to have actually given us the full story. A a majority, we should make clear to international listeners, does actually include quite a lot of the governing party. It does indeed, and it includes also the Democratic Unionist Party from Northern Ireland. So um, they voted the government down, and they've gone and lost another vote hard on the heels of that one, uh, an amendment put forward by no less than 16 members of the Conservative Party, headed by Dominic Grieve, former Attorney General, saying that Parliament must have the right to amend government proposals if it doesn't get, if it loses this deal and tries a plan B, that Parliament can actually start to take over the running on this process from what is still a deeply divided government. Uh, Kathleen, are we any the clearer, do you think, on what the practical upshot of all this is going to be, in particularly in the wake of that amendment passed in the last few minutes, which will give Parliament uh, a greater say in the event that the deal is voted down? Are we, are we being somehow eased towards a softer Brexit? 
If this is your version of easing... Uh, it's, it's a relative expression. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. Um, I don't think we're being urged by anyone in particular towards anything. I mean, that's one of the difficulties is you've got urgings coming from at least six different positions. Uh, and uh, it's not yet clear who is going to be the strongest. I mean, obviously, I think... Do I jinx myself here? I think that no-deal Brexit has gone for a Burton as you say. Uh, I don't think that's very likely anymore uh, because the pressure, uh, because the, the uh, uh, amount of strength on, on the uh, uh, not, not, not a no deal, I think, is, is now too strong. Um, I agree with Quentin that the sun will rise in the West before Theresa May's uh, plan next week actually is approved. It's just very difficult to see, short of a massacre of an awful lot of members of Parliament, how it's going to happen. The trouble is, by 2018 standards, the sun rising in the West wouldn't actually seem all that remarkable, uh, I don't think. Uh, Quentin, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out where this does actually leave us. If we assume, as everybody seems to, that she cannot get that vote through Parliament... Then what? Does the revelation of the legal advice, whatever it is, uh, potentially make any difference to anything? Because we have to assume, do we not, that there were reasons why the government didn't want Parliament reading the legal advice. It's presumably not terrifically flattering towards the Prime Minister's deal. That's it. And that, that makes it, one would assume, even less likely that she will actually get support for that deal. It's specifically what I think people were looking for was that the, 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 the special arrangement, this so-called backstop for Northern Ireland, uh, is impossible for the United Kingdom to get out of without the agreement of the rest of the European Union. So there's no walking away from it. And that, the hardline Brexiters say, is, oh, my God, that means we're going to be bound into a customs union and even single market arrangements with the European Union forever and ever and ever. We don't like it. So I think what we're seeing is that any individual deal that is has a prospect of coming before Parliament at the moment is highly unlikely to get a majority. What I think the order of things will happen is May will lose her vote next week. Labour will then try to have a vote of no confidence to force a general election, and they won't get that approved either. Then there might be a move which probably couldn't be led by Theresa May, so she may have to be overthrown, but nonetheless to go for a Norway-style deal. That means single market, but also freedom of movement, anathema to Brexiters. So I don't think that that will necessarily get a majority. And in that situation of total deadlock, what pops up but, hey, we better perhaps have another referendum. Not the Not last one on the old such vote. Not on the old vote, but on the new deal versus remaining. Brexiters will hate that, I think. But nonetheless, I think that may be the only way out of the deadlock. Well, I, I, I wanted to make a comment about five minutes ago in terms of uh, 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 Jeffrey's... Uh, a, a long time in politics, <laughs> Indeed. Uh, no, it's just the question. I think there's probably a bit more to uh, the legal advice. Um, what is more likely to be included um, is not just general points, as, uh, as Quentin has pointed out, we all know all that sort of stuff, but it's also likely to include the negotiating strategy of the government towards... Uh, the commission. Uh, 
in which case no one, no uh, lawyer likes his client's uh, strategy in that way to be revealed. Um, so in the question of, of privilege, uh, I'm being old-fashioned here. I think that is probably uh, a bit too bad. Okay, well, let's move on now. Uh, We will doubtless have ample opportunity to return to Brexit over the coming days, which are likely to seem like they're taking years. Uh, But we will move on to Washington, D.C., where CIA Director Gina Haspel has been briefing Congress on the murder last month of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. The CIA has already concluded that the killing was probably ordered by Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, though this has been disputed, most notably by Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and U.S. President Donald Trump. Director Haspel caused some upset by failing to appear last week before Congress, along with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Secretary of Defense James Mattis, both of whom appeared willing to extend the Saudis a measure of wiggle room. Um, Kathleen, is she likely to have told uh, Congress anything that they really didn't know or perhaps couldn't have guessed? I mean, she, she's stuck, as far as we're able to tell, from the reactions of people coming out to the CIA line that, yes, we think Mohammed Ben Salman did this. Well, it, it's difficult to see unless they've been lying through their teeth for quite a while. Uh, it's been agreed that they have that there were these eleven phone calls or text messages or whatever between Ben Salman and his his henchmen, uh, the th- uh, the uh, theoretical leader of the pack who went after Khashoggi. Um, but they have already said as well that they didn't know the contents of these eleven messages. So unless um, the, all of a sudden they discover what the content is and she tells Congress, tells the committee, it's difficult to see what else there can be new. Um, Quentin, where does this leave the, the member of the public trying to figure out what's going on here? Because it's while it's fairly clear that there are probably fairly shabby political reasons why people are trying to steer blame away from Mohammed bin Salman, it's also... It's not like the CIA is an organization that never makes mistakes or gets anything wrong either. Well, I think what's interesting here is actually the degree to which Congress, that's the Senate and the uh, House of Representatives, but the Senate in particular, seems to be really not prepared to accept what Donald Trump is saying as president, but is insisting on getting more from the CIA. So they were really quite cross that the director of the CIA didn't turn up last week and therefore they they want her back. And secondly, they've gone ahead and passed a motion saying we want to get on with cutting back on the help we're giving Saudi Arabia in the war in Yemen. So there's actually quite a kickback coming from Congress now, in spite of the fact that in the Senate, there is a bigger Republican majority that ought to be supporting the president than there used to be. Well, the point is, when she didn't when she didn't show up last week, the implication has to be they had something to hide. I mean, that was seriously stupid not to do that, because they could they could have, you know, uh, blandished in the, in, in the same way, but by... Why not show up? She's been called by Congress. Must have something to hide. Kathleen, to return to that apparent dispute about this and other subjects between uh, the president and the CIA and the FBI and indeed pretty much every other uh, arm of American law enforcement... Is that one of those things that the media has become overly excited about because it's Trump? I mean, historically, is it actually that unusual for presidents to disagree with the intelligence services and the FBI? They just usually do it in private, don't they? Well, they certainly disagreed um, 
over Iraq. George W. Bush Bush decided that uh, what the CIA had to say, the intelligence services had to say, wasn't as wasn't a, a commanding element of his decision to go ahead. So yes, I mean, the, and the other problem is, as happened over here with Iraq, uh, head of MI6 admitted, is that it, intelligence was massaged to support what the assumption was that the political masters wanted. So the question is, that, that in that way, that undercuts uh, the ability to believe on both sides, I think. So it is not so unusual, but it's not so unusual in ways, I think, that are different uh, from as things are done over here. Uh, Quentin, do you think in general that heads of intelligence services should be seen rather than heard? Because in, in the last couple of days, yesterday, in fact, we've seen the current head of MI6 or the Secret Intelligence Service, to give it its formal name, uh, Alex Younger, uh, was speaking yesterday about what he clearly thought was a, a matter of some urgency. Um, is it useful to have them contributing to the public sphere? I mean, yes. I, I mean, I don't think many people would want to go back to the way it once was, where the British government officially denied that MI6 even existed. That seems a bit too far in the other direction. Yeah, I, I think it's actually a pretty good and healthy sign that they're coming out more. We can see what they look like. We can, you know, I don't think... Um, I don't think there is a downside to it. We always had a probably pretty good idea that they might come out and say the sort of things that uh, the head of MI6 has just said. So he's very worried about the Russians and he's actually quite worried about the Chinese and he's worried about cybersecurity. Well, that's no harm in having that out in the public arena. I think that the dangerous moments we've had in our past have been, for example, on Iraq, where Downing Street and the Prime Minister was listening to unfiltered intelligence that was raw intelligence from, like, one operative. Famously, that's what happened at the time of Suez in 1957, when the British Prime Minister, Sir Anthony Eden, was persuaded by this one guy in Egypt that, in fact, he could get away with the plan he had. And he couldn't. It was wrong. Wrong. So that worries me. I think that intelligence should be more widely publicised and shared, and I think we should listen to these people. That said, though, Kathleen, what, what is a healthy degree of scepticism, both for, for governments and publics, to have of intelligence services? Because as I was saying earlier, and as, as you both have demonstrated, it is, it's not unheard of for them to just be plain flat wrong. Well, you have to have some sort of information. I mean, uh, as Quentin has implied, it's better to have two or three arguments than, than just to have one. You have to have a certain trust in your intelligence service. There's no doubt about that. One thing about uh, Alex Junger saying this uh, out of, you know, so that we could all hear it, is that we know where he stands and therefore you can, so it rather does increase the trust that that's also what he's saying um, to the Prime Minister. Um, I would not want intelligence to be spread around in the sense there's no point in having it if you're going to share it with everyone else, if you see what I mean. There has mm. to be a certain element of surprise. There has to be a certain element of um, analysis. And you don't really want that to get too involved in political back and forth. But you do have to trust 
your operatives. You have to trust your leaders. And at least with Alex Young coming forward, it gives you something of a chance to decide whether this man is trustworthy or not. I mean, just as a final thought on this, Quentin, before we go to a short break, do we or have we made the mistake, uh, both for us and indeed for them, of over-mythologising the intelligence services? I remember a few years ago myself interviewing Dame Stella Remington, the former Director General of MI5, um, who said the thing is that it's actually an awful lot, mostly it's an awful lot less interesting than people assume it is, which is, of course, what she would say, but but, but, but seriously. Yeah, I, I think that's quite right. You know, we all have all these one Wonderful spy novels, spy films, James Bond, and so on, which is total mythology. And and so there is a sort of sharp intake of breath, oh, we must believe these people. I think the more that we actually see, the, the more we can be a bit sceptical. And I'd l- just like to mention one former ambassador to Moscow, who once said he had the largest intelligence department of any British embassy in the world, and every single thing they told him, either he knew already (laughs) or was wrong. So what are you going to do? Then what are you going to do? Where are you going to, on what evidence are you going to base your decisions? Put your finger up in the air, flip a coin? You've got to to do the best with what you have. It's all part of a big picture, and what I think you need to do is bring in the intelligence, bring in the economics, and bring in what's visible in the headlines. We are going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Kathleen Burke and Quentin Peel. Coming up next, the populist far right establish another European redoubt. Tired of seeing the same few tedious tourist haunts? Well, the Monocle Travel Guide series has stopped off in 30-plus cities and counting in order to dispense advice on travelling like a local. From the finest spot in which to sip a cocktail with a contact, work up a sweat, or take a dip. Our comprehensive travel guide series are packed with tips, essays, and tidbits for getting the very best from your destination. Monocle's travel guide series is published by Gestalten. We've recently added Mexico City and Zurich, Basel, and Geneva to the library, with Athens and Helsinki coming soon, and guides to Chicago and Hamburg following early next year. The Monocle Travel Guide series. Cities are fun. Let's explore. Tune in to the Monocle Daily on Monocle 24 weekdays at 2200 London time. We unpack the stories that have been dominating the discussion in Europe and North America and set the agenda for a new day in Asia. The show features regular insights and analysis from Monocle's bureau in Toronto and New York, special guests there and across the Americas, as well as experts and analysts at our studios in London. Whether it's industry-focused reports on anything from art and architecture to business and entertainment, or a light-hearted guide to how to spend the perfect weekend in a great city somewhere in the world, you're in good hands. Monocle's network of global correspondents are your guides. Join our team every weekday for the Monocle Daily on Monocle 24. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Kathleen Burke and Quentin Peel. It would be an exaggeration to suggest that Spain has been completely invulnerable to the populist nativist manias which have beset other European countries in recent years. But Spain has been hearteningly resistant to obviously far-right variations on the theme, possibly due to recent memories of what life is like when such people are actually in charge. Well, not anymore. In this past weekend's elections for the Parliament of Andalusia, 12 of 109 seats were 
won by Vox, a newish party in the mould of Germany's AFD or France's Front National or Hungary's Jobbik and on. And tediously on. Um, Kathleen, how seismic a thing is this, do you think? I'm not sure it's so seismic in that way. I mean, 12 out of 109, uh, it would, I mean, that's enough to give you a bit of apprehension and perhaps to uh, alert other parties that they'd, but there are things they'd better do. I don't think it's, uh, they're about to take over the, the national government, if you see what I mean. I mean, obviously, like a lot of other of the right wings, it, it's a reaction to, uh, a reaction to, to, uh, Two main parties have been, that have been in power for too long and, and need to go off and revigorate themselves. And to all the economic difficulties, which Andalusia is one of the poor parts of Spain, um, is suffering. But uh, it's, it's interesting. It's a shock. But I don't think the world is going to end, not even in Spain. Andalusia, Quentin, is, of course, Spain's southern shore. Right? It's Mediterranean one. And that being the case, it has been the landing ground for Mediterranean migrants who have made it as far as Spain. Is, is this basically just another anti-immigrant vote? I think that immigration is a factor, but it's not the most important factor. As I understand it, the most important factor is actually a rise of sort of Spanish nationalism because of Catalonia and because of the independence movement in Catalonia. And what is then perceived as the failure of the Popular Party, the PP, and the Socialist Party, the two centrist parties, to deal with the problem in a tough enough way. So what Vox, this right-wing party, has been saying is we want more central rule from Madrid we want less devolution of power to Catalonia and the Basques and so on and that's where they've picked up votes primarily and the secondary thing is a degree of anti-immigration which is quite striking because Spain has been remarkably tolerant of a high level of immigration for, for several years. It, it is an interesting populist tack then Kathleen giving up control is what they want to do. I mean, has their hard line against Catalonia been that important to them, do you think? Well, I, I mean, I agree with Quentin that nationalism has been, is, has been a, a real push with them. Uh, they're calling for all powers to be taken back to the center to crush all the governments of the, the, of the regions, including Catalonia, and of course, uh, rather a lot as well. Uh, they have a, a list of 100 demands it's not just uh, nationalism. It's also um, repealing the law against sexist, uh, sexist violence, for example. Um, th there's, uh, there's very much a wanting to turn back the clock to when men were men and women were someplace under the, the table. It, well, kitchen, but, you know, back of the kitchen. <laughs> so in that sense, it's, uh, gosh, I wish we were there also, I think, is part of it. But I, I agree that the nationalism and the reaction and, and the idea that you ought to be stronger, uh, all these anti-Spanish uh, people deserve to be, to be controlled and possibly crushed if they can't be redone. So uh, immigration, yes. But you, you, you know, during the campaign, you didn't hear that much about anti-immigration. Is this going anywhere, Quentin? Because people, I mean, it's tempting to sort of see them as beginning the same trajectory as has been joined by, or enjoyed rather by, for example, Alternative for Deutschland, who were initially, and not at all without reason, written off as a fringe group of unsavoury cranks and who are now quite a significant presence in Germany's National Bundestag. Uh, I mean, 
first, I agree absolutely with what Kathleen said at the start, that this is not a sort of tidal wave. This is... 12 seats out of 109. However, what it does and what's the problem now right through Europe is this fragmentation of the political ground and the squeezing of the centre. So the two parties that significantly lost support in this are precisely the two traditional parties of centre-right, the PP, centre-left, the Socialist Party. What we've now got is not just Vox on the right. You've got Ciudadanos, uh, which is a sort of more liberal right a party on the right and you've got Podemos a more left-wing party on the left and it's now very difficult to form a government in Andalusia in Spain I suspect to come in Sweden in Germany and so on you name it well let's look finally at Australia and what appears to be the resounding success of a simple swinging environmental initiative earlier this year the country's two biggest supermarket chains Coles and Woolworths each decided to cease offering single-use plastic bags there was at the time an amount of protest arguably disproportionate to this minor inconvenience but in a mere three months the bans have resulted in an estimated 1.5 billion fewer plastic bags being unleashed upon the environment. Um, That is a lot of plastic bags. I'm trying to do the maths and actually it's weirdly plausible if you divide it by 20 odd million Australians yeah, yeah, using a couple of bags each a week, you'd get there. Um, Is this unalloyed good news, Kathleen? You must be thinking political theory, I suppose. (laughs) Uh, Because anything that keeps plastic out of the ocean has got to be good. Uh, Do you think, you mean it's it's a a growth of an Australian... nanny state or guidance or telling you what to do in your personal life it's hard Uh, to see what the objections are well those objections were raised by certain angry middle-aged white men with newspaper columns they don't do the shopping i guess (laughs) (laughs) i think is the the completely correct retort which i passionately hope somebody actually made to them at the time um quentin what is this just basically the way forward just to say no they're they're a bad thing ban them Although this isn't actually as yet the the entire country legally saying it. This is an initiative by two private companies. But would there be anything wrong with every country in the world just saying, no, this is is bad? Take your your own damn bag to the shops. It won't kill you. I think we're going to get there. I think that is pretty inevitable. I was, uh, as I was looking at the background of this debate and I discovered what the GPGP is in Australia, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, and it is absolutely horrifying how much plastic there is now swilling around in our oceans and going up the rivers. I mean, the, the problem is biggest in Africa and Asia, I think, where there's an awful lot of plastic coming out. But we're going to have to do something about that. So what's wrong with having paper bags again, for goodness sake? Why do we have to have plastic? So I think that actually it, it helps. And if people are actually faced with this reality, then they respond. Uh, it's like also plastic bottles we're going to have to get rid of. And hey, folks, let's go back to glass. I mean, Kathleen, I, I do occasionally enjoy wondering, it, it passes the long winter evenings, what things we do now that will a few decades hence be seen as just completely insane in the way that I guess we now think of the fact that people were allowed to smoke in cinemas and on tube trains. Uh, is, is single-use plastic going to be one of those? I think, uh, yes, I think that that, uh, 
uh, obviously at this point it's it's appears to be a, fir- a first world problem because if you're in a third world and you're not very the point is that you can use plastic bags to put together and make shelter for example uh, there are things you can do with plastic bags that you don't need to do in Britain so in that sense uh, it's going to be it's going to it's going to take a while um, but yes I mean no one says it's a good thing opinions have changed it kills fish and birds and with little bits if we're not careful us uh, Quentin then what is your personal plastic bag regime how how good a citizen are you on this front I now pretty well always use sort of you know bags that last a lifetime which of course they don't but nonetheless sort of things even made of, of sort of hessian and uh, rather eco-friendly things like that if i forget well maybe the odd plastic bag does slip back to the house uh, which my daughter then uses to clean up after her dogs <laughs> but the question i guess is then kathleen if, if the option wasn't there if you forgot would people then forget less because i i do the same i try to do the right thing but occasionally you think oh i want to get something on the way home and i forgot to bring a bag but if there wasn't the option of picking one up at the shop would that change my behavior almost certainly unless you wanted to carry your hamburger or chicken in your hands back to the car <laughs> uh, which i very much do not uh, and i think it would be remiss of me to mention before we go that I, i'm pretty sure uh, that you can get a very decent uh, monocle branded cloth tote bag doubtless from one of our fine shops or our website uh, i have got one at home which I, I do occasionally remember to take with me uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show kathleen burke and quentin peel thank you for joining us at midori house the show was produced by tom Tom Hall, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Nick Moniz. Our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. Music next at 1900. It's on design with Josh Fennett. There's more on the day's big stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800 London tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>